Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. So, Victoria and I wanted to do an introduction to this episode because it is a very tender, very vulnerable, pretty terrifying topic, the fear of death or just death itself. And we both feel incredibly protective of you, our beautiful, beloved audience. And we feel protective around not wanting to spike you. And of course, we can't do that perfectly. I'm sure there have been episodes in the past where you have been triggered. But we do our best to make this a trigger-free environment where we are naming and bringing pieces of the highly sensitive experience to light in a compassionate and comforting way. So we wanted to frame this episode for you that we did with J.S. Park, um, also known as June, which was quite a deep, wise extraordinary experience to talk to him about death and also as we listen back through your ears and also through our own ears being highly sensitive people ourselves we could imagine some spikes and triggers so the first thing i want to say is if you choose to listen to this and trust yourself. If this is not a topic that you want to delve into, don't listen. That is perfectly fine. You have full permission to tune in and trust yourself regarding whether or not you want to listen to this episode. But if you choose to listen, I encourage you to do so when you are feeling well-resourced, well-rested, well-regulated, not when you are feeling vulnerable, shaky, tender inside. And I would also encourage you to, if you do get 
spiked, if fear comes into the picture, um, that you can meet that place. You can pause. You can take a break. When I was listening back to the recording, I noticed a couple of fear spikes. He says something like, youth doesn't guarantee a long life. And I wanted to rebel against that statement. What do you mean youth doesn't guarantee a long life? Yes, it does. But then I noticed that I also felt some relief. Like he's just saying something that we all know is true. There are no guarantees. It doesn't matter how old you are. There are no guarantees. So I was interested in that experience of relief to name what's always living in the undercurrent anyway that we try to push down and just say it. And then my inner parent stepped in and gave me some reassurance like, yes, that's true. And the chances of living to old age are much higher now than ever before in history. And that is also true. So as I was listening, I was watching the multiple layers that were arising in this most tender and scary conversation and working with them, meeting with them. So I think there are only a couple of moments of that. Um, but you might have your own experience, and I wanted to put that out there for you. And the last point I wanted to make, and then Victoria would like to share a few things, is that we can make room for the fear of death when it comes in, and even the panic and the terror around it. And we talk about this in the conversation with June. Because that's normal and natural to feel scared of death. That is the most natural place for humans to go around death. But as June says, we do have a choice. And I just want to underscore this point that he makes. We can watch the fear come in. And then we can ask, do I want to feed this fear? Or do I want to come back to the present moment? And remember that right now, in this moment, I am here. And there are people that I love who are here. And I have gifts, and I have goals, and I have values. And they're all here, right now, in this moment. So it's not an easy practice, but it is one that I often teach when people talk about the fear of death. And I try to practice it myself to make room for the fear and then usher it along a channel into an appreciation for life in this moment to come back to right now. What is happening right now? Present time. So he says that as well, and I wanted to underscore it at the outset as a very tangible tool and way to work with that fear of death when it comes in. 
Thank you, Cheryl. Mm. I've, I had so much anxiety going into this episode mm. and something that I kept thinking about was something you shared with me. I think earlier in the day before we recorded with June, you were telling me about the psychologist Michael Greenberg and how he talks about awareness versus attention. So how we can let something be in our awareness or hold something in our awareness without fixating our attention, obsessing, ruminating, and maybe even performing compulsions mm -hmm. around it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the heart of the question for me going into this conversation was around how do we hold awareness of death and the preciousness and fragility of life without fixating and obsessing. Yes. And I think that's a that's just an ongoing question for every human being. There's no clean answer, but this episode, us recording it, listening to it, mm. you listening to it, listener, I think in and of itself is like a kind of exposure. And that can be hard when if you have a brain that thinks, if I even think, talk about, or listen to a podcast about death, I am somehow jinxing myself or summoning yes. it. You know, we have these superstitious thoughts and you know, we have this magical thinking that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's all about how can I find the ways that I can live, like you said, as present and as fully and as deeply as I can without getting dragged down by that panic or fear. Mm. And I thought I would share a little reflection that I wrote two years ago, right around this time at the end of summer in 2020 that I shared on Instagram. It's not very long, but it kind of speaks to this topic. And I felt so anxious sharing it on Instagram, like, oh, no, I'm going to jinx something. And I'd speak to that in the post. And I feel anxious sharing it now. But I think that's part of it, too. Um, so here's the post. You know that saying, live like each day is your last? I can see the wisdom in that. But sometimes I found that life is long can be more helpful for me. Anxiety pipes up and says, hey, don't say that, you'll jinx it, as if an Instagram post holds sway over the vicissitudes of the universe. For people who experience a lot of anxiety, we are already hyper aware that each day might be our last. Our brains get stuck on loss, death, and dying, wired to wait for catastrophe, the other shoe to drop, the end of the world. What we might be less attuned to is a sense of spaciousness, patience, and trust. Life is long, inspires slowing and lightening, appreciating and forgiving. It helps me be more intentional without getting totally paralyzed by perfectionism because if I make a mistake, I can change direction. At the same time, it reminds me to think practically about the consequences of my actions. How do I want to treat my body, my relationships, and the earth if I might be living with them for a long time? Of course, we don't actually know whether our lives or the lives of our loved ones will be long. That feels especially true now. I don't say this mantra to mock anybody who is staring mortality down the barrel. I say it for those who have always feared the vulnerability of hope, 
who think we can outsmart the universe by never expecting or planning anything in the first place, who react from a sense of urgency and crisis that usually isn't founded and that actually doesn't protect us. It just makes us jumpy. Sometimes the idea of life being long is more cosmic than personal. I like to remember how much life there has been before me and will be after me. The sun rises each morning, whether I think about it or not. The moon waxes and wanes right on time. Summer ends, but that's not the end of the story. It comes back again. Hoping for this, looking forward to it, doesn't rob the other seasons of their beauty. If anything, it can help us enjoy the quiet, cold, stark beauty of winter when we remember that it won't last forever and we aren't steering the whole ship. Isn't it a relief to remember that sometimes? So that's the question for me, just how do we hold life is short, which is true, and life is long, which is sometimes also true, Mm. at the same time. At the same time. Yes, and I think that's what June speaks to so beautifully, is the multiplicity, the paradox, holding layers and layers. It's not easy, but I think it's a conversation that when, if we can watch the fear responses enough, can offer some real guideposts and expansiveness around this topic of death and life. Okay, let's get into it. Okay. (laughs) J.S. Park is a hospital chaplain, published author, and viral blogger. For seven years, he has been an interfaith chaplain at a 1,000-plus bed hospital that is designated a level one trauma center. His role includes grief counseling, attending every death, every trauma and code blue, staff care, and supporting end-of-life care. He also served for three years as a chaplain at one of the largest nonprofit charities for the homeless on the East Coast. J.S. has a Master's of Divinity, a B.A. in Psychology, and a sixth-degree black belt in Taekwondo. He is the author of The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise, published by Northfield Press. J.S. currently lives in Tampa, Florida with his wife, a nurse practitioner, and his two-year-old daughter and adopted dog. We wanted to talk to June today about kind of a heavy topic, the fear of death, maybe the heaviest topic. So thank you for graciously agreeing to come on the show and talk about and talk about this with us, June. Victoria and Cheryl, I am very, very happy to be here. If I can just brag a little bit, the way that we entered into this interview, I just wanted to brag on both of you, I should say. I feel so at ease and at peace right now because you both just took a lot of space and a lot of pause to enter into this grounded calmness and Mm -hmm. working where I work and being the dad of a two-year-old and seventh year of marriage. And I feel like there's a million things going on just to be able to have that groundedness. Just want to brag on both of you. Thank you Mm -hmm. for offering that and providing that Mm -hmm. and just helping me to I probably was like way up here and I'm just now right in front of this mic, very present with both of you. So, so thank you so much for supporting me and guiding me through that. 
lovely and beautiful. And I'm very, very happy to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So we, we told June that many of the people who find their way to Cheryl's work and to the Gathering Gold podcast are highly sensitive people, people mm-hmm. who have their struggles with anxiety, maybe panic attacks, maybe OCD, and that often what Cheryl has found in her many years of working with these very sensitive souls is that there's a fear of death that arises really early in life, particularly a fear of their parents dying. I definitely fall into the all of those categories that I mentioned and had this experience. And that fear kind of often continues on throughout life, and it might lead to a lot of avoidance or suffering in different ways. And Cheryl and I were just so struck by so many things about June. Um, we could go on and on, but one of the things is how June, you you walk into the space that space with people, people who are dying, people who are grieving, in a way that I think is. I, d- I want to be careful because I don't want to dehumanize you by like putting you on a pedestal or or erasing your whatever your struggle or suffering is within the work that you do and your vocation. But also, I genuinely just have so much admiration and respect for mm-hmm. what you do. Yeah. Uh, just to reference a couple of things you said about the HSP, the highly sensitive person, that was something I only very recently heard about. But as soon as I heard about it, I was like, oh, I know, I know what that is. <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't have the name or the word for it. And then it comes and it just, mm-hmm. it's like, it, you're like, yes, that is the wavelength of the frequency, the naming, the language that I was looking for. Um, I didn't even know the word trauma until about seven, eight years ago mm-hmm. when I started the chaplain training. But then when you learn the word trauma, you're like, okay, I've always known what that is, you know? And um, thank you also for saying about the part about the pedestal. I think sometimes I get comments online that are like, you're a good person or you're a saint or you're an angel. And that's so kind of people to say that. And then there's also part of me that's like, wait, <laughs> you know, like there's still so much I need to learn. And there are visits where I don't connect with everyone and I'm not the chaplain for everyone. And that's okay. You know, I- I've learned what my limitations are and all that. So I, I really appreciate you kind of balancing that and and acknowledging that. In this, in this chapter in your book, the voices we carry in this chapter on grief, which is so beautiful. And I was telling you earlier, Victoria texted me earlier today and said, if you can take, take some time to read this chapter. And Victoria and I were both weeping. Um, I don't, know how anyone could read this chapter without weeping. Um, But you talk about, you talk about the dream and this dreamboat river Mm -hmm. and going down this river and seeing so many of the people that you have walked alongside their death. And I mean, it's so, it's so painful to read it. Um, I can't even imagine living it and that you carry 
all of these humans, these stories, these souls in you. You've known hundreds. How, I mean, I have so many questions around that, but I'm curious if your exposure to death and this scale, how has it changed your personal view of death, your fear of death, um, not just your own death, but you know, there's this paragraph here where you, I mean, I'm not even going to be able to talk about it without crying, but the mother who gave birth to twins who didn't make it. And as a parent myself, as you are, the, I, the biggest fear is around my children. And I know that's true for so many of my clients and course members who are parents. There was a fear of death before having children, but it just kind of goes through the roof, both that they could lose me or my husband or that we could lose them. And I'm not, I don't know which is worse. They're both just so horrible. Um, but you have a daughter and you know, we all know that death exists, but it's in your reality much more than the average person, exponentially more. And so I'm just curious on a personal level how living in living in this river of death, not just in a dream, but in your daily life, how it, how it changes death for you. And, and life. Yeah. Um, first, thank you both for reading my book. And I know that that chapter, I probably, this sounds strange, but I, I wept writing it. Mm -hmm. And I've reread it a couple times. And each time I, I can't get through it without weeping, just because I remember, I remember all my patients. And um, I think all of us, the chaplains, uh, and I work with quite a few of them, a couple dozen. Mm. Um, and we're at a thousand plus bed hospital. I, I'm sure that we all have some low grade PTSD. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that I work with amazing people that I get to process things with. We get to pause for that. And I have two therapists, which I'm also very thankful for. I realize I'm very lucky. But yeah, to answer your question, Cheryl, um, you know, I think there are, are two almost opposite feelings that are probably contradictory, but that I hold with intention. There's one feeling after seeing all of this in the hospital, just how quick everything can go. Mm. Because most of the patients that I see, they were living their quote unquote daily ordinary life. Yeah. And then the irreversible came crashing in. You know, and I'm, I'm at a level one trauma center where I see car accidents, falls, fires, strokes, drownings, the worst that you can think of, gunshot wounds, stabbings, all of it. Very often it was someone who was living their life, didn't have, and no one has plans really almost ever of going to the hospital. Hmm. And uh, certainly not ending up in a level one trauma center. And so there is this uh, urgency 
And so when my two-year-old falls over or, you know, even if my uh, wife, when when we're driving together or something, you know, uh, when we're out anywhere, that's even slightly dangerous. (laughs) I think I have this uh, always under the surface panic (laughs) ever Mm -hmm. since I started working in the hospital. And uh, I guess... I'm, I'm smiling and almost laughing right now. It's a knowing laughter. It's a nervous laughter, you know, mm. because it, it's very much, it's almost an obvious thing that I'm saying. Uh, but there is this urgency of like any moment, youth doesn't guarantee a long life. And any moment, everything can come crashing in. And so there is a fear, almost a panic that hap- that is there. And yet this fear of knowing that at any moment, I could go, anyone could go. The other, the contradictory feeling is I have this, um, and again, I'm probably not saying an original thing, but I, I do have this very, almost like I can taste it, this appreciation uh, and gratitude and presentness mm. everywhere I'm at. And I think that has changed me so much that anywhere I'm at, I don't think I was like this before working at the hospital, but these days, most of the time, wherever I'm at, I am uh, soaking it in as much as I can. I have this uh, overwhelmed feeling all the time, and this is probably true before the hospital too, but I'm always blown away by everything. I'm always saying, wow, or, or, and I think my daughter's caught on to it because she's so expressive and always, she's always saying, wow, and ooh, and everything, you know, <laughs> new toys. She goes, wow. Um, I, I, there's a, what's the word for it? I guess wonder, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, now I, I feel like maybe it was always there, but it's just even more pronounced and punctuated now. Uh, because I know it always could be the last time. And um, knowing it could always be the last time, having that kind of be the throw line, it's scary and also it's liberating. You know, there's a there's a terrifyingness to it, but there's also a freedom in that. And so I wish I could almost package that feeling that I have because it's just this tangible almost weight on my tongue. Like I can really, really taste the room, mm. you know? And, uh, there was a, last week I was lying down, uh, on the bed with my wife and my daughter and we were just playing. We we're just having one of those moments where nothing on the schedule right now. We were just playing and our daughter was acting wild and she's just so funny. She's hilarious. I mean, she makes me laugh deep, deep from the belly, you know. And uh, I started weeping. <laughs> mm. And uh, I told my daughter, and my wife was there, I told her, I said, when I'm an old man, this is how I'm going to dream of you. Mm. You know. And uh, I said, I hope I get to be an old man. And if I do. This is how I'm always going to remember you, you know, Mm. just capturing that memory and just enjoying it as much as I can, not on my phone, not thinking about anything else, just being there with her 
And when I said it, I looked over at my wife and she was crying. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry in this, you know, happy moment that we're having. But uh, almost couldn't help myself just how much I loved and enjoyed and soaked in that moment. And, you know, wouldn't it be amazing uh, if somehow I wish it didn't have to take seeing all that death to even really get to that place. But, you know, maybe it doesn't have to. Maybe it really doesn't. Maybe that gratitude and that last time, you know, maybe we can always keep that in the forefront of our mind and heart. But uh, I'm glad, I'm grateful that I get to do this work and that that is one of the takeaways that I can now live with being so present. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you brought full blown tears to my eyes with that too, June. I just, I found myself thinking about, you know, Cheryl's work, her book is called The Wisdom of Anxiety. And she talks mm -hmm. about the mm -hmm. gifts, you know, the gifts of anxiety, which is a very kind of counter cultural idea. But just found myself thinking like, um, so often I've, like as a child, I felt so, what you're saying, so aware of like, this could be the last time with everything. And I always felt, I grew up feeling like ashamed about that because I didn't feel like I had a reason to, it wasn't like I had um, experienced that kind of trauma or that um, closeness to death in that way. And yet I just carried this, that feeling of, which sometimes morphed into panic, like people with panic attacks and everything. But I guess like the gift side of it, of the awareness is what you're saying is the appreciation and the deep feeling and the presence when we're lucky. But I'm curious how you are able to maintain that presence because the urgency, panic, fear part can become so debilitating and like mm. make it so hard to function and to be in those moments and to appreciate them. And I'm just curious. I mean, I know it's a complicated question. But I'm just curious how you maintain that balance enough that you can continue not just to function, but to embrace that laughter, that play, that joy, that love. Yeah. I don't even know if that's an answerable question, but I oh, figured well, I'd throw it out there. As my family and friends know, I do that perfectly. No, no, I <laughs> not at all, right? There's there's a struggle side to it. You're you're hundred percent right in that it does get overwhelming. Uh, that anxiety, you know, I, I'm, I'm, this is probably not you for your listeners, but you know, the, the Yerkes Dodson law, that kind of parabola uh, about anxiety reaches a point. There's a vertex and I'm being very, very clinical and technical, but there's a vertex where it reaches high productivity and then there's a drop off where you just mm -hmm. completely shut down. And so uh, I do end up a lot on this other side of the Yerkes Dodson law. Uh, past that vertex where the anxiety comes and it's too much and my resources are overwhelmed mm. and the anxiety outweighs my ability to cope with it. And um, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I have amazing coworkers. We have this kind of inside joke where chaplains make the best chaplains. You know, <laughs> We're, I'm lucky I get to work with chaplains because they really do. But you know, that 
it, I think it's a even older philosophical dilemma about, you know, terror management theory and, and Sheldon Solomon's worm at the core talking about how because humanity has always lived with the fear of death, it's why we uh, possibly, it's a possible explanation for why we made up religion or why mm-hmm. we made up purpose in life, uh, why we made up uh, games and why we made up all these human systems of being able to play, of being able to negotiate and do business and accomplish, and even the Greek concept of glory. Um, that's terror management is the driving force that in order to mitigate our own fear of death, this is why we made purpose and meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And so I remember as a young atheist, because I became a, a Christian, uh, a person of faith later in life, as a young atheist, that was kind of my go-to argument. You know, well, religion is made up because we're just managing our terror. Hmm. And so uh, I'm speaking very philosophically here, but I think I bring that up because that is something that we all have struggled with as an age-old question, you know, that fear of death. And even hmm. more than the fear of death, it's the fear of annihilation and non-remembrance. No one will ever remember me again. And all the things that I do, if they will fall into an abyss, what does it matter what I do now then? Question mm. mark. And that, that's, and that's not something that I can hope to solve in this hour interview. But I can say, for one, when the terror and the fear is overwhelming, that's natural. You know, mm. it's, it's going to happen. There's almost this whole, like, I see behind the curtain and I know where we're all headed. And the panic comes mm. and it's, it's a natural thing that happens. And so it's, it's almost as if to say, um, there's nothing wrong with you just because you're scared of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, shouldn't feel guilty. Shouldn't feel like less of a person. Um, shouldn't feel quote unquote weak or any of that. Uh, we all are going to experience that when it comes crashing in, the existential crisis, uh, the panic. Mm. Um, And then on the other hand, there is a choice about, I'm living here and now with people, uh, and I'm living here and now with gifts and abilities and callings. Uh, What will I do uh, with the moment that I have? Mm. Even if we're just flying on that, you know, practically a comet (laughs) in the middle of just vastness of space. What will we do? You know, there is this amazing movie I watched recently uh, called Paddleton. Um, Paddington is great too, by the way, with the bear. <laughs> Both of those are great. <laughs> you know, they call them kids' movies, but man, those those two movies were wonderful. Uh, not ashamed to say I cried in both. Um, but Paddleton is a wonderful movie in that it is about two men, and one of them, their best friends. And their neighbors, and one of them finds out he's going to die, and that's just the whole movie. And I'm kind of spoiling it a little bit, so for those listeners who want to watch it, and I'll, I'll try to keep it a little spoiler free. But there is a scene where one of them is uh, suddenly enters into this panic attack, this anxiety attack uh, about dying, like he realizes what's going to happen, and it just hits him. And uh, in previous scene, in a previous scene, 
he was offered some medication in order to help with the anxiety. But he says, oh, I don't need that. That's okay. He, he decides not to take it. But then there's a scene where he's panicking and he goes, oh, that's why the medication is there. <laughs> that's why I should have taken it. Um, but what he does is it's such a striking scene. He, he is with his friend. And as he's having this panic attack, he and his friend uh, almost lean into one another. And it's a striking scene because it's not just that his friend is comforting him or consoling him through it. It's not just that his friend is the consolation. His friend is almost the point and the purpose of why we're alive. Mm. It's not just that the self-care that we do or the vacations that we take or when we go see a mountain or go kayaking or spend time with friends, that's not just a break from life. That is life itself. It's making that choice you know, to be able to say, I'm going to live in this present moment. And these things are not consolations. Uh, these things are not just things that are just going to, you know, buy the time or just be fillers or fill in that gap. But this is the point. Mm. And so that's where that's the choice that I make internally. There's so much I want to say, and I want to say it also for our audience listening, because I think this is going to be a very difficult conversation to listen to, but I also hope one that um, gives some guideposts and some places to orient around this conversation around death. And I think one of them is Well, one of the things I love about your Instagram page, your book, this conversation is that is your humanity and your allowance for the full range. So Victoria asks you, how do you basically, we're asking, how do you deal with this fear of death and this awareness? And you say, well, sometimes I don't. Right. And sometimes I'm on the other side of, of the curve. And sometimes I just shut down and there is this sort of low level panic. And just naming that I find so liberating because it allows for the humanity that we are all afraid of death. It's not about trying to get over that fear. It's about making infinite room for the most human of fears that humans have feared from the first human. Mm-hmm. And so for you to say, well, this is there, you know, and there is also this intense, palpable appreciation, gratitude, wonder, presenting, being here, that lives that coexists and so you're in this both and you're in more than both and just the the totality of the human experience and and in the and in the book you write about the fear of death but you also write about it on your Instagram page there's so many amazing posts about being angry about death and being angry that that anger is part of grief and I think anger is something that we try to bypass. It's like it's okay to cry, but it's not okay to throw chairs, and it's not okay to beat your chest, and it's not okay to scream. 
but you're making so much room for how life and death express themselves and how grief expresses itself. And I appreciate that so much. Um, And so it makes me think about highly sensitive children like Victoria's early awareness of death and my own children's very early awareness, acute, exquisite awareness of death from such an early age, the age of five, and my clients and course members. And it's it shows up so early without, like she said, any kind of big obvious trauma. It's just an awareness. But without conversation about it, without community guidance, exposure, then I think that's when it it goes awry and it becomes debilitating. But the awareness itself is what you have from working in this field. But these children have it innately. And I often say, you know, I think the highly, highly sensitives, which are like the Victorias and my children, I'm not even on that level. Um, I'm a highly sensitive person, but they're like layers above me in their attunement and exquisite beauty and otherworldly awareness and compassion, that they are in some ways the lost mystics, priests, shamans, priestesses of our world. Hmm. That if those children had guidance, had an elder helping them to talk about the awareness of death, change, loss, death in all forms, passage of time, that we're all getting older by the nanosecond, then maybe that other side, right, the the beautiful side of the, the wonderment in life and the gratitude would grow alongside. Like if there were more of you in the world (laughs) and coming into schools or I don't even know how it would happen because I think it has to be not just a one-time, now we're going to talk about death, kids. It's like it has to be woven into the fabric of life. These conversations, the awareness, breaking down the taboo, So I wanted to say that to, for people listening, that there is another side that I think we can grow now as adults, even though most of us are not chaplains, we sort of live it anyway. Hmm. We live the acute awareness of death, even though we're not seeing it every day, we're still living with it. And how to prevent, how, how is that not debilitating? It's only in, I think, making room for it, infinite room. Yes, you're going to feel panic and fear sometimes. And to let that in and let that in and let that in and not try to bypass and override and all the things we do and ignore and deny. 
and also then to let let that allowing grow the wonderment and the appreciation. You know, I've talked a lot in different places about our son who just turned 18 and he's a pilot. Hmm. And he started flying when he was 13. And I've never known, I've never known the terror that I've had to walk through. It's less now. Um, but when he first started flying and when he first soloed, when he was 14, just 10 days after he turned 14, he flew alone in an airplane. And it was a night of pure terror. I could not get the images, the catastrophic images hmm. out of my head of what could go wrong. What if he has a panic attack? What if he did it? What if, what if he hits a plane? What all the like horrible images. And it was a true rite of passage for me as well as for him um, to face that fear. And people ask me all the time, how do you let your kid fly? Well, how could I not? This is, it would be a fate worse than death to stop, to prevent Everest from doing what he is here to do. And so, yes, I have to face the fear, but on the other side is this unbelievable pride, joy in seeing his joy and seeing him live out his calling. And they go together. There's not one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Cheryl, I think there were, um, you named quite a lot of amazing layers, amazing and hard layers of grief, you know, because there's that parental grief or the parental fear, I should say, mm. of the push and pull and the back and forth dance of, you know, how much do I keep safe? How much do I say, no, this is your life and you got to have the wings to go. And uh, I'm even experience, I experienced some grief the other day. This may sound silly, but my daughter peeled her own banana. Mm -hmm. And I said out loud, well, what's, what's my purpose now? Because <laughs> I'm so used to, you know, doing this for you. I got to make the little, you know, uh -huh. I got to cut the banana in little pieces. And now you just, well, okay, I guess. Enjoy your banana then. <laughs> you know, there, there's the grief of like, she no yes. longer needs me for that. Yes. And uh, yeah, there's part of me that's so proud of her. And there's another part of me that's like, no, let me, let me do that for you for just another month, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's saying words now in ways that are not baby-like, but more adult-like. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, you're actually saying the real word for that now. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a, almost a silly grief in that. Uh, but it isn't silly, I think, because mm, no. we're seeing the passage of time and mm -hmm. we're losing the familiarity of being able to be parents. And yeah, you named that so well and that, you know, we, we, you said you, you would love for Everest to do the flying and to lean into the life that he has chosen, you know, as much as it, it is terrifying mm -hmm. and there's a terror to it, you know, the day that I may drop off uh, my daughter the first time for, you know, college and all, all of that. There's always, there's always that grief in there. So yeah, that's a, that's a natural parental fear. And I don't know if there's ever a time where we say, oh, that, that's going to be 
you know, okay with me. No, I'm fine. You know, I don't think there's ever, Mm -mm. I heard somebody make a joke, say somebody needs to write a book, how to raise your um, first child, like your fifth. (laughs) (laughs) And then basically the contents of the book are, you know, you have to raise four children first. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's no way to do raise a fifth, you know, (laughs) first child, like your fifth child. Mm -hmm. And even the fifth child, there's still fear, you know, there's still that push and pull that conflicted torn feeling. So yeah, there's the parental fear and grief there. And then I think you named another layer about the the anger, the anger part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's very complicated grief. And I think, uh, so for one, there's grief that's that revolves around injustice. Mm. And every kind of loss, even when a person dies naturally, for them to be gone into that vacuum of loss, even in itself, even if they die peacefully, feels like an insult, a, a, an injury, a injustice. Yes. No matter how that person goes. You know? And so part of grief, I think, encompasses sorrow and sadness. But there's another part of grief that I think, as our response to loss, there's a almost a defiance and a rebellion. It says, mm. this is not right that this yes. person is gone. And it is in the remembering and the capturing and catching of memory that to me, that's how grief makes sense. Mm. You know, um, if you don't mind indulging me for a moment, I'm going to speak through my head and then try to land in the heart. But th- I think a lot of that suppression of grief, at least historically from what I'm seeing is when people were in the achieving, accomplishing conquest phase, they didn't have a lot of time to bury their own dead. Mm. They didn't have a lot of time to pause and grieve. Uh, Even before capitalism was named, there were still the institutional wheels of, I need to achieve more and accomplish Mm. more. Mm. And in a culture and a tempo like that, there's no real room to pause for grief. Yeah. And when oppressive nations, the oppressor was conquering uh, other nations and other people groups, they did not allow the conquered group to grieve their own. Because if a conquered group was allowed to grieve their own, rage would emerge and retaliation and rising up. Mm. And so I know I'm I'm talking a lot academically from my head, but that's very ingrained mm-hmm. and indoctrinated and passed down through generations to where we are today. Yeah. And death is shoved aside and looked past and rushed past because there's so much of it that is tied to, it's going to slow us down if we think mm-hmm. about it too much. Mm-hmm. And I can no longer achieve. I can no longer uh, accomplish all the things I want to. I can't conquer these people or subjugate this country. So, that's how a lot of grief has become suppressed over time. And even the way that death is talked about, if um, you want a good book to read, From Here to Eternity by Caitlin Doty, she named something called death engagement. She traveled the world and looked at how different cultures process death. Mm. And she noticed that in uh, classic Western, particularly uh, American culture, the death engagement process is very compartmentalized Um, because have we thought really about why do we bury our dead six feet under in a box? 
why do we talk about letting go, turning the page, selling all their stuff and getting rid of any kind of reminders of them? Why is grief pictured as a process of I'm here, I go in the valley, and then I emerge on this other side, summit flowers on top. There are books like that. Um, even taking Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model, which she never meant for grief, <laughs> and superimposing that on the grief process. Well, here's this clean five-stage process that you're going to go through, you know, DABDA, which is, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. That's how you're going to get through grief. Uh, we have all these steps and processes that is that are compartmentalized. But when you look at other cultures, for example, there's a people people group that every summer they exhume their dead ancestor, sit them at the table with all their clothes on, and have tea and food with them. Now, to us, uh, maybe modern Western American people, we may think, how macabre and ghastly and grisly is that? How awful, right? Um, but there are cultures, for example, that have uh, Viking funerals. You know, they, they burn their dead on a pyre. There are some that have glass coffins where they celebrate for days and days with their dead in a coffin that is made of glass so that everybody can see them and they're clear mm. all the way around. Um, Dio de los Muertos and the shrines that are built for our ancestors. Uh, all of that is about remembrance and quote unquote normalizing the process of death. Not that we are okay with death, not that we can't mm -hmm. be angry or can't be sad, but rather, how do we embrace and honor this person mm -hmm. who has died and hold them in our memory and lift them up and that their story and legacy would become a part of us and then we carry it forward. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a true and healthy and whole grief process, mm -hmm. a grounded grief process. Well, we're not literally burying the dead because can we really, the more we try to suppress, the more it's just going to emerge in all mm -hmm. other kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Grief is not saying I'm going to let go, but rather it's about moving with. And so the ways that we talk about death, it's just burying. It's just suppressing. And unfortunately, a lot of that is because of historically how we've talked about it. I think we're seeing more now, especially in the last maybe decade or so, more healthy talk about grief, expressing all the emotions around it, not burying it, and recalling our ancestors. Um, in Korean culture, I'm Korean American, we, I don't want to use the word celebrate, but we commemorate our death days. Mm -hmm. In other words, our, the patriarch or matriarch of the family, um, every year on their death day, just like we celebrate birthdays, we commemorate death days. Same and, in Jewish culture. Yeah. I'm Jewish. We have the yard site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it is strange and bizarre to me and also understandable that modern Western American culture, really, when we think of death, we think of horror movies, which unfortunately, that's a marketable pop culture type of thing. We've equated mm. death with horror and the macabre. When death is a part of life, which doesn't mean that it's easy, which doesn't mean that it's something that we just accept, uh, but rather, how can we name the emotions around it, then validate them, and then ritualize it in a way where it is a part of our everyday life? Amen. I want to jump in, but I want to allow for you, Victoria. Like so many things I, I want to say. I'm just like... <laughs> I don't even know. I'm so bowled over and like I, I could just talk 
to you or I could just listen to you for hours. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I remember when my grandmother died when I was about 14. I The thing that I remember the most about grieving was saying to my, like really saying to myself, I do not want to act, I do not want to stop actively grieving because that would be like saying, it's okay. It's okay, God. It's okay what you did and you can do it again. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of that as defiance until you just said it that way, but it was. It was like an act of defiance almost. Um, I feel almost grief. <sighs> I feel right now almost this grief about what is lost by not being allowed to share that with each other, like what you're describing about how much is lost, how much um, connection Mm. and love is lost because we don't have um, that acknowledgement, those rituals, that shared experience baked into our um, life together. So everything you just shared was so powerful and I just am grateful for that. So thank you. Yeah. It's true. They say that languages are dying every day. And I think the language of grief has certainly had its moments where it's, uh, seems like it's almost died out, Mm. Uh, but people are bringing it back and, uh, trying to become fluent in it again. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, it struck me as I was reading this chapter, um, exactly this topic, I've seen the end result of that suppression. So death is considered a curse. Is it okay if I read a little bit? Of course. Okay. Death is considered a curse, a taboo topic, of hushed tones and sour smells. I've seen the end result of all that suppression. I've seen men and women beat their own chests, trying to shove down the memory of the dead. It was what they were taught to do. Confronting grief sounds like a crazy thing to do, after all. The irony, though, is that when you bury somebody too fast, you end up denying what they meant to you. Then their voice comes back in all kinds of ways, none of them good, and you end up disappearing, a part of yourself too. When grief is buried, it doesn't go away. It waits, it shouts, it demands to be heard. Grief is a story gasping to be told. second generation Korean American and when I rediscovered my roots and this was very recent maybe a decade ago um, I swung on a pendulum 
you know, because I was so mad at one point that I had assimilated so much mm. and had lost out on so much of my own heritage and my roots. And I just became bitter about it, really bitter. Um, and then I swung completely the other way. I'm not Korean enough, you know, and every Korean I've met, they want to set me. And so there was this back and forth. And in any growth process, whether we're engaging and pursuing justice, whether we're refinding our identity, whether we're coming to terms with my capacity to grieve, to health, healthily and vulnerably encounter my own emotions, mm -hmm. to learn self-care and boundaries, to be fully integrated. There may be these pendulum swings where as I uh, encounter or as I grow into my capacity to grieve, I may feel all the way on this end, just terrified of death. Suddenly I'm faced with it. Suddenly I can't mm. run away anymore. Mm. And the panic comes mm. and dealing with that. And then we may swing all the way on the other side uh, and say, no, it was easier where I was before. I'm so mad that somebody opened this up in me. And why do I need to be emotionally vulnerable? And I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Back and forth. And, uh, you know, I, I work sometimes with those who uh, struggle with addiction. And there is a pendulum swing there, too, of mm -hmm. I can do this. and I'm, I'm ready to go. And I... And then all the way here, guilt about all the ways that I've hurt other people and I've wasted my life. And, and in all these growth processes, there's going to be a back and forth. Mm -hmm. But I think what's happening is, is that we are not always taught in our body, our minds, and heart to hold multiple tensions together mm -hmm. and to be able to integrate different pieces that may seemingly be irreconcilable but when put together, make us more whole and more full. And that takes practice. It takes internal work. It takes movement. It takes rest. It takes self-care. It takes community. It takes resources. It can take medication. It takes a lot. Yeah. And it takes a lot of stillness too. Mm. Um, there will be moments when it seems like it's too much. Why did I even engage in this? And then there will be other moments where I'm so glad I engaged in this journey and I can't imagine still being where I was before. Mm. And what I hope is, is that with every pendulum swing, that there's probably going to be a couple steps forward and a couple steps back, a couple steps forward, that as we take those couple steps forward, we see more and more of the light breaking in, more and more clarity less confusion, more integration, mm -hmm. and being able to say, uh, I am becoming more myself, the person I knew I could always be. Mm. And so the first time anyone experiences that emotional vulnerability, it's hard. Just like the first time I encountered my own Koreanness, you know, it was hard. Mm -hmm. It was a lot to grieve over. Even learning how to grieve, we grieve all the ways Victoria, like you said earlier, about all the time that was lost, all the things that were lost. So what I hope for is gentleness and patience during that process. Yes. And that as the emotions overwhelm, recognizing that's a part of it and that's a part of the growth that's going to happen. Yes. Mm, beautiful.
June, I wish we could just have you on for every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Just (laughs) Victoria, thank you. And thank you both for letting me talk. So, you know, most of my job is listening. Yeah. And I always make this joke, but this will probably be the most I talk all week. <laughs> but you also listened so well, even in this conversation. And I've had like little goosebumps throughout this conversation because you've just said words that have like, just this past weekend, I was on a camping trip with my boyfriend and we were in the Adirondacks and we got to, we were swimming in this beautiful lake. And I said to him, as we were sitting next to the lake, like when you have a moment like this, do you ever just think, oh, this is the point of life? And he was like, not really. (laughs) (laughs) But he was like, yeah, I get that. So when you were talking about like, these things are not consolations, they are the point when we go on vacation and we get to the mountaintop. And I just got goosebumps. Like that was yesterday that I was beside this lake, like, oh, this Mm. is the point. And every time I, li- I have so much fear every time I'm afraid to go on a hike or travel somewhere or whatever. I remind myself like, but then what's the point? And whenever I'm in the moment, I try to just go, this is the point. Mm. And so I just had so many goosebumps throughout the conversation. I just feel like you have this, um, just such a beautiful way of putting mm. language to these experiences and I'm just so moved by all of it. And I feel like every time I read your writing, I have these, like every Instagram post, I see that you posted and I'm like, all right, get ready for some like major mm-hmm. revelation because <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just went off on a little tangent, but I just wanted to share with you the goosebumps that I, I felt throughout the conversation oh. and just my appreciation for you in the world and your work in the world, because I know you hear it all the time. But um, it's, you're, it's just so meaningful. So this has been such a special, um, such a special experience for me. So thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you so much, June, for being here with us. I feel changed by this conversation. I feel expanded. I feel... Um, like it actually is going to change how I think about death and think about life and making making all that room. It's, it's just what we need. We need to be bringing death from out, from behind the, the, the big dark curtains. You know, we need to be having these conversations. And I listened to another podcast with a death doula who was on, I can't remember her name at the moment, but we'll find it for the show notes, who was on um, the We Can Do Hard Things podcast. And Mm -hmm. she said something like, um, just like talking about sex won't get you pregnant. (laughs) You know, (laughs) talking about death won't make you die. Hmm. <laughs> you know, we need to be talking about these things, and it's not going to make our big fear happen. Hmm. We have to keep, we have to bring this conversation out from those dusty chests. And I loved the historical piece that you brought in about why there wasn't time to grieve. Like there just there wasn't the space. There wasn't because grief requires slowness. It requires us to stop. 
and it just hasn't been there. And so it's like in some ways we're relearning, but we're also maybe also learning for the first time how to do this. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Victoria here with a little coda for this episode. Today I watched the season finale of the new TV series version of A League of Their Own. It's based on a historical reality of women in the U.S. in the 1940s who were allowed to play professional baseball for the first time because the men were off in World War II. And it's a show that's obviously not just about baseball. It's about these women really coming to life and being fully in themselves and in their lives. And at the end of the season, before their final practice, before a big game, one of the women on the team that this show is really focused on gives a speech to her teammates. And I thought it really pertained to the themes that we were talking about in this episode, so I wanted to read some of that speech for you. She starts with a quote from the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Let me be something every minute of every hour of my life. Let me be cold. Let me be warm. Let me be hungry or have too much to eat. Let me be honorable or let me sin. Only let me be something every blessed minute. And she says to her teammates, here are the facts. The Blue Sox, they've always been stronger than us. They're better than us. They just are. Her teammate says, why would you say that? And she says, because saying it out loud means we don't have to be scared of it. They are better than us. They are. But that does not mean they get to win. I know we're here today to practice, but I don't think we need to practice more at all. We don't need to know how the game ends. We just need to be there, pitch by pitch, play by play, each precious minute at a time. We fight to win, but if we lose, let it be epic. Let them write poems about how we went out. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>